we have entered into what uh, many refer to as the Lenten season on the Christian calendar, church calendar. Of course, the time leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, when some people just out in the world think of Jesus Christ, they think of someone who was wise and kind who just kind of ran into unfortunate circumstances. He was a man who went around doing good and teaching others to do good, but unfortunately got on the wrong side of some powerful people who were able to stop his movement. And then they may compare Jesus to other people in history who gained a following but then was cut down before his time. But you know, when you read the Gospels... You read the account of Jesus, his time on earth, you don't really get the picture of someone who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Someone who just happened to walk into the wrong place and then get killed. In fact, when you read the Gospels carefully, you can see them saying that Jesus was in the exact place he was meant to be, at the exact time he was meant to be there. And in fact, it almost looks like he was following a well-thought-out plan. And then, you know, someone may say, well, why did things turn out so badly for him? And we're going to be looking at that in the next several weeks. And we're going to be looking through parts of the Gospel of John... And as Jesus meets with his disciples in the Gospel of John, or recorded in the Gospel of John, he's going to take them through a very critical time. And today's message, there's going to be some parts that Jesus tells them that I believe their main thought is, what is he talking about? So in the next several weeks, we're going to be joining up with Jesus as he walks through this most critical time of human history. I want to see what you think as we enter an upper room in the ancient city of Jerusalem in the first century A.D., and we're about at the Jewish feast of Passover. A room where Jesus is saying many things, and his listeners may not be able to put all the points together into the same package. Now remember, the Passover commemorates, the Passover meal commemorates the time when God freed his people from Egypt and Egyptian slavery. It was the night that they said goodbye to slavery and said hello to freedom and to having God as their God. Not that everything went perfectly, but they were free from the Egyptians. And so now let's look at John chapter 13, and we're going to be covering parts of John chapter 13. And we'll start verses 1 through 5. This is the upper room. It says... Before the Passover celebration, 
Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and returned to God. God had given him authority over everything, and he knew that he was from God. He was God in the flesh. He was one with God. So he knew who he was. He knew what God had given him. And look at this. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. So with the full knowledge that Jesus had that he was the only begotten Son of God, that he was fully God and fully man, that he had come from the Father, he was one with the Father, and that he'd come to the earth on a mission that God sent him on and planned out and that it was time, just about time for him to go back to the Father, to go back to his eternal bliss. And that Father, the Father had given him all authority. He gets up from the meal, and you'd almost think it was going to say, he gets up and he starts exercising his authority. But it says, he gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, which puts him in the clothing of a slave, a servant. And he begins washing the feet of his disciples. And you know, when Jesus did that and washed the feet of his disciples, it, he wasn't just being hospitable or just being a polite host, like if you were to get up and go get your guest a drink of water when they're at your house. He was actually taking the position of a household servant, a lowly servant. And of course, many of you have heard that in the Middle East, people would walk dusty roads. And so one of the uh, things that they, they would afford their guests, if they had a servant, were to take a basin of water and wash their feet after they come in from the dusty roads after their walk. So Jesus, knowing that he was the very Son of God, and he had come from heaven, and he was about to return to heaven, and that the Father had given him all authority, he took that role of a hired servant with his disciples, those for whom he was their master, their teacher. Now I want you to skip down to verses 14 and 15 and look at Jesus' explanation he says, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. This is Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Everything he does and says 
will be some of his last instructions to his followers, his disciples, before his death. <clears throat> and with all of this exalted authority and his birthright, he teaches them to assume the lower position of a servant. Now, you know, that's a strong message that he's giving to his followers. You know, for him to get up, take off his outer clothing, be dressed as a servant, go around and watch, wash each person's feet. And that's a message for us, too, isn't it? You know, Jesus is dealing with the first century church. We are the 21st century church. We're following right along as the church. If we are to be followers of Jesus, then we should see ourselves as servants, shouldn't we? And you know, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves as more important than others. I mean, that's just the natural tendency because of our human sin nature. But Jesus, right at the outset here, just kind of lays it out, doesn't he? We are to consider ourselves like hired servants. We are to serve others. So, you know, as I look at this passage, <clears throat> and I think of the disciples gathering to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, I can imagine this move of taking off his outer garment and washing their feet. You know, he just didn't sit down and say, now serve each other. He got up and he did it, didn't he? And in the most graphic way, in the most real way. And I imagine it set a good tone or a strong tone in their meeting that night. But then as Jesus <clears throat> continues, he has this very somber, very disturbing news for them. And it's in verse 21. It says, Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now, I think that must have been like a bombshell. It must have been just like a bomb dropping into that room. You know, the disciples knew that there were people out there that wanted to kill Jesus. They had seen evidence of that. I mean, they probably saw when they tried to run him off that cliff early in his ministry. And there were some other things <clears throat> where they picked up rocks to stone him. And so they knew, and plus just being around Jesus, they knew that there were people who wanted to kill him. But imagine the Paul that comes over the room when Jesus tells them that it would be one of them that would turn him over to his enemies. Just imagine, probably thinking, well, who would it be? Of course, they were asking that, weren't they? Who could it be? In the Gospel of Mark, it shows how the disciples are asking Jesus, each one asking him, Lord, it isn't me, is it? And I used to think, <clears throat> when I first started hearing that, how would they not know if it was, one of, if it was them? 
But then as I understood more of the story, I realized that, you know, in their situation with these uh, religious leaders and others hating Jesus and wanting to get him alone, I can imagine any disciple at any time potentially could be kind of dragged off and made to tell where Jesus is going to be at some point so they could get him. And I can imagine the disciples thinking, I hope that if that happens to me, I'm, I'm brave enough not to say anything. I'm brave enough not to turn him in. And so possibly they were thinking, boy, I hope it isn't going to be me. And then, think of Judas sitting there now. And it said Satan had already prompted him to betray Jesus, and so he'd already gone to the leaders. And he's looking for a time to turn Jesus over to them. And here Jesus is sitting there, and he, he probably thinks, okay, nobody knows this. I'm waiting for my time. Just when the right time comes, I'm just waiting for it. And Jesus mentions out loud, there's someone here that's going to betray me. be a pretty scary thought and Judas is probably thinking now what do I do I mean he probably knows it's me how can I do it now but guess what guess who makes it easy for Judas to carry out his plan Jesus does Jesus himself he actually tells him the exact time to get up and go ahead and do what he was going to do. It says that Jesus offers Judas a piece of bread. Satan enters into Judas. And Jesus says to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And he did it in a way that the other disciples didn't realize what was going on. That's the way Jesus did it. That's the way he carried it out. And he knew what he was heading for. So what an experience that the disciples were having with Jesus in that last meal before his death. A graphic lesson of servanthood, how they're supposed to relate to one another, take the role of a servant. And then to find out that one of them, one of the 12 would betray him. How do you think you would have felt if you would have been there that night, if you had been one of the disciples and you were seeing all this take place? And how do you think Jesus felt that night, that night of all nights? But there's more. Look what happens right after Judas leaves the room. Verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, these poor disciples, how can they put these things together to make sense? Jesus has said that he's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples, and that's a shock. Judas leaves the room, 
but the disciples don't know. They think maybe he's going to go out and take care of the money. And then Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. What? You know, glorified means to be lifted up in honor, to be praised, to, to be honored greatly. So what is Jesus talking about his time for his glory? How does that fit in with one of the, his close disciples betraying him? Well, you know, at this point, the disciples aren't really able to put it all together, but, you know, we can from the scriptures. Jesus is entering his hour of glory through his willingness to become the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. The love that drove Jesus to the earth through his life and to the cross so that we could be forgiven. The sinless sacrifice who took our place and paid the price for our sins, for all who will turn to him in faith. And the one who reconciled us to God and made us God's children. For that degree of love and willingness and willingness to sacrifice the Son of Man is glorified. He's lifted up, he's honored. Because of his love, because of his sacrifice, because what he's willing to do for people who have sinned and don't deserve heaven. And then God is glorified in him. So that's how it could be his hour of glory, even though he's heading towards beatings and crucifixion. And that is why when Judas leaves the upper room to betray Jesus to his enemies, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now, I, I don't think the disciples understood all of that. I think that's easy to see. They're probably now just still stuck at one of the twelve is going to betray him. And then look what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 33. If they don't have enough trouble already, listen to this. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. And I'm thinking... What a meal this is turning into. I mean, washing each other's feet, becoming servants to each other. One of us is going to betray the Lord, our precious Lord. One of us. And he's saying, now the Son of Man is glorified. And now he's telling us he's going to leave and we can't come with him. What do you mean we can't come with you? We always come with you. Where are you going? What are we supposed to do? Kind of an unsettling mealtime, wasn't it, I think? 
But then he leaves them this command in verses 34 and 35. <clears throat> so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. <clears throat> now, as, as I've been pointing out, there seems to be a lot of loose ends here in this meeting that the disciples are probably having a lot of trouble putting together. Betrayal from one of the twelve, glorification of the Son of Man, that doesn't seem to fit together. Jesus saying he will soon be leaving them. That doesn't sound very good. But at least this command is rock solid. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's easy, but it's understandable, right? This one kind of fits. And it's something the disciples, as well as we, can use as an anchor. You know, there are things in the Bible, things about life, things about the Christian walk that maybe we don't understand, not able to put it all together. But no matter what we don't understand, we can understand this. Jesus has given us a commandment to love one another. As followers of Christ, we are to love one another. And you know... <clears throat> I've thought about this from time to time because as, the, as Jesus was giving the apostles a mission to start on, to go on, and he was doing it in a, in a way that I wouldn't have done it, but a way that he knew was the right way. But as he was giving them this mission and taking their step at a time, you know, you would think that his base command, his, his bottom line command was be brave. Be adventurous. Don't let anything stop you. And that might have been in there some, in some ways. But the base command was love one another. And you know, you got these apostles, these 12 apostles that are going to go out and they're going to reach the world and they're going to go into places that where people hate them and they'll get killed. Every one of them will give their lives. And they'll get mistreated. They'll get beaten. They'll be put in jail. So all those things you could have said. But he said the most basic thing is love one another. And that kind of has struck me over the years because, <clears throat> you know, you when you think of their mission, you think of all the other things it takes and what they're going to have to do, and the travels and, and the counseling and the Bible and everything. But yet he says, love one another. And the way that I have loved you, you love one another. And then verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our love for each other will show people that we are redeemed people of the Lord, that we belong to Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice has made us whole, 
that we love one another. It's our identification mark to the world that we are followers of Christ. You know, we have different means of identification in our day, don't we? I mean, you have the old-fashioned driver's licenses. You have a social security number. You have a school ID. <clears throat> you have finger and thumbprints for your phones. You have technology that, has, that uses facial recognition. Some people are born with great big birthmarks on who knows where in their bodies. Some birthmarks are more inconvenient than others. But you know, we are supposed to be marked by our love for each other. People will know that we're followers of Christ by the way we treat one another. And so, <clears throat> you know, you think about driving through an unfamiliar town. Maybe you're going on a trip, and sometimes you go through towns. And you might see things that, in the town that interest you. You look at maybe the restaurants as you're driving by, or shopping centers, or schools, or stadiums, or a business park. And then you might see on a, on a side road or a little highway that, that goes through Middletown, you might see church building, a church building. Or you might see one from the highway. It's a great big church, modern church building with well-lined parking lots and lights out front and, and nice shrubbery. And you may be going through town and see a smaller, older church with the old sign out in the front lawn. And you know, the looks of a church as you're driving by, the church building, can sometimes give you ideas of what that church might be like. I'm not saying that those ideas are necessarily correct, but you just kind of get these ideas from the looks of the church. But of course, you could, you could guess wrong, couldn't you? It could look like a nice, peaceful church, but boy, when you go in there, there's just a lot of fighting going on. Because a church with people who are willing to take on servant roles and who truly love one another is the kind of church who is following the example of Christ. It's what's on the inside that makes the difference of the church. Have the people come to serve one another? Are the people learning to love one another? A church with people who come to serve and come to love and help others is a church that's brimming with eternal life. The nice externals are nice to have and they can be used in good ways. There's nothing wrong with that. But the all-important factors of a church rest upon the attitudes of the people inside the church. And so from this passage, we can ask ourselves, have we come here to serve one another? 
Is our mind on helping others? Do we truly love one another? Now, you know, we can always talk a good game. If you've been around church long enough, you can learn all the, the church phrases, the loving phrases. But the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? Now, having said that and not having any kitchen skills, I'm not sure what that means, but it, it seems like it fits here. <laughs> The proof is inside the building, isn't it? As to whether it really is a church that shows people Jesus Christ, that they belong to Jesus Christ. It's the hard attitudes. It's the care for one another. Are people there just to take? Or are they there to serve and help? Is every little thing a thing to complain about? Or is there something to try to fix and help with or even endure for the sake of the people? And then one last thing I'd like to mention. <clears throat> you know, the disciples probably weren't able to put all those loose ends together in that upper room. Of course, they had a hard time putting pieces together all through their time with Jesus. Some of the things being said just weren't easily explained or totally obvious. But Jesus all along and everything that he said and when he said it and how he said it, he knew what he was doing, didn't he? And he held back information that they were going to need, but he knew they couldn't handle it then. And he knew what to say, just when to say it, and how to say it. And in the end, it all turned out to the glory of God, where the disciples were launched, and churches were spread up all through the world, and it keeps going on now. I just think we're still working off of that foundation at the beginning that Jesus started. And so in the end, it all turned out to God's glory and the salvation of mankind. So even when we can't put all the pieces together, even when you've done this and you think, well, this should have been rewarded, but yet you, you suffered here for doing good, it seemed like, Still, it'll all fit. When we make the right choice, it will all fit. The choice to follow Jesus. The choice <clears throat> to keep turning to the Lord. Even when things seem like you're being cheated or mistreated or it doesn't go right or you lose when you do good. You know, the apostles went through all of that. And they went through times of not even knowing where is this going? Where is he going? How come we can't go with you? And Peter says, I'll go anywhere and die with you. And Jesus says, will you really? Because <laughs> by tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. There's so much we don't know, isn't there? 
but Jesus, but the Lord has it all under control, and we just have to take the right step every time, no matter where it leads. And this shows us that. Servanthood, care for one another, and just take the right step with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time of year that we focus upon your, the end of your journey on the earth, in the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that it may have an impact on us and all the churches and all the people, and may many people during this time visit a church, and may many be saved and turn to their Christian friends. And may we have the opportunity to share your message with others during this time. We thank you for giving your son. We thank you for the plan of salvation. And we thank you that you have all things figured out. And we can just trust in you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.